Welcome to No Guitar Is Safe, Episode 6, The Guitar Show with a Helicopter. Today, we're going to copter over to the rooftop of a midtown Manhattan hotel. Then we're going to hop out and head down to the 14th floor, where in my room, I've set up an impromptu recording studio. Why did I go through all that trouble? Because I knew that I was going to be in New York City on an overlapping day with the great Joel Hoekstra. Joel! Where do you start with a guy like Joel Hoekstra? He's done almost too much exciting stuff to cover in one episode, but of course, we're gonna cover it all, and he's gonna play a ton of guitar for you. I love the way he plays, man. It was 10 in the morning, coffee barely kicked in, and I started recording right away, even if he didn't want me to. He's just that good. Sorry, Joel, but if you play like that, people are gonna hit record, which is exactly what happened on the new Whitesnake album. They brought Joel in to play with the great lead singer, David Coverdale, who fronts Whitesnake, alongside the great guitarist, Reb Beach, and they did a new album called Purple. It's all deep purple songs updated with huge mixes and epic guitar solos and epic arrangements just jumping out of your speakers, focusing on David Coverdale's years when he used to sing with Deep Purple. It's really happening, it sounds great. And I think it's on Frontiers, which is the same label that is putting out Joel Hoekstra's new album called Joel Hoekstra's 13, Dying to Live. You gotta check this out. This is a star-studded affair, and of course he's gonna tell you all about it. And he put his heart and soul into it and wrote all the music and lyrics. It's just so great to see everything going right for Joel because he so totally deserves it. Because every time he takes on a gig, he totally brings it. And he aces it. Like when he got hired to take over guitars for a night in Night Ranger after Jeff Watson left. No rehearsal. Difficult guitar parts. He crushed it. They invited him to the band. He did that for six or seven years or more. Eight years? I don't know. Ask him. Also... Rock of Ages, the great musical on Broadway. That helped get him a gig playing a bunch of shows with Foreigner. Of course, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. They could have just about any rock guitar player they want playing those giant arena gigs. And they got Joel. And now he's with Whitesnake. He's got these fantastic new guitars from Gibson with these custom Whitesnake medallions on them. He's also got this awesome purple sparkly guitar fitting the deep purple theme from Atomic Guitar Works that people just flip out over. And today, with his uh, gold top Les Paul that he's had for so many years, he's going to talk about and show you exactly how he did what he did, which is become one of the most in-demand rock guitar players on the planet. And it's fun for me, too, because we kind of become friends. You know, I, I play with Kathy Richardson, who he got to start with back in the day in Chicago. She sings in Jefferson Starship now. And, you know, I've jammed with him here and there, and I interviewed him at Musicians Institute when I was a guitar director over there where he once went to school. I've also interviewed him a few times in Guitar Player, and just he's just a riot, great guy. If you want to see any links to him playing with Whitesnake or links to his new album or photos of his cool-ass new guitars or photos of our crazy little impromptu hotel room interview, you know, I got two rolling microcubes that I pulled out of my suitcase and put them on top of upside down waste baskets and gaff tape microphones around the room because there's no mic stands. I think it came out good. I think they, I think it sounds pretty good. I hope you will too. If you want to see all that, go to our Facebook page. No guitar is safe. All right, let's fire up the copter. Quick thank you to Guitar Player Magazine, my pals over there, Matt Blackett, Art Thompson, Kevin Owens, and of course, Editor-in-Chief Michael Melinda and New Bay Media Executive Bill Amstutz. They've all helped me do this and I appreciate it. All right, let's go to Manhattan.
It's good to see you, man. Yes, man. So great to see you too, you maniac coming through. New York, man. Here we are on the 14th floor of some building, hotel room studio. Got a couple of rolling cubes, but I think they're sounding pretty good. What you just played was amazing. What What is that? What you working on there? Oh, that was not work. That was uh, Noodling 101, I believe. Pretty sure. That was some nice pasta right there. That was, that was elegant pasta. Oh, thanks, man. I, like I said, I've uh, the last few months, really all I've played is, has been the Whitesnake set. So my fingers are going, what are you doing? You're doing something different that's outside of our set. But yeah, I'm glad they're still kind of working. Now, um, for anyone who doesn't know you, and more and more people are starting to know you, you've had the most exciting career. It's just a thrill to watch you rise from gig to gig to gig and I really want to kind of get your story and and how you've done all that and hear some of your adventures but first I want to mention that you have a brand new album coming out it's like your third your fourth solo album yeah I do I mean technically this one is has a side project name Joel Hoekstra's 13 and uh, the reason being is the three solo albums that I have out were primarily instrumental guitar records so it really sounded like oh okay that makes sense that's a solo album this guy's playing guitar all over it this one though people for years have been saying how come you don't put out like just a straight ahead rock record and and uh just good rock songs and that's obviously like the genre i'm known for these days man between being a night ranger and now white snake and so uh, i wanted to do that and i got a bunch of great you know musician friends you know uh to help me out on it but i did all the writing and all the words and melodies the whole nine yards and uh so it's kind of this weird thing where it sounds like a band but I did all the writing so I don't want to call it a band and be unfair to all those guys so uh, I, I thought a project name was the the best choice so Joel Hoekstra's 13 is what it's called the album's called Dying to Live it's out October 16 on Frontiers Records sweet now what, what's with the 13 what does that mean uh, it's just like has lucky and unlucky connotations and the, the record kind of has a lot of that it's just about like uh, struggling between the dark and the light a lot in your life and, you know, eliminating obstacles in your life to get where you're meant to be. And I guess uh, grappling with, you know, demons and vices and all that good stuff. I don't want to get too artsy fartsy on you here. But yeah, it just seemed to be uh, appropriate. And it's been a day of the month that has been a lot of, a lot of important life events um, have fallen on it for me. I was born on the 13th and married on the 13th, et cetera. And it just always seems to... Uh, Sounds like 13's a lucky number for you in your case. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. We'll see how the album does. No, so that, <laughs> there's a great EPK, like a teaser video you can check out online. There's an EPK up there sort of breaking down and describing the album where you can hear some samples. And the lyric video for one of the songs has gone up as well. Uh, the song Any more and i think probably by the time this airs uh, a song sampler uh video is also coming out where you can hear a 45 second uh snippet of each of the songs so hopefully people will check it out and dig it man it's a i mean really truly uh, well i'll brag on them and not on me but it's a killer lineup man it's a lot of my favorite musicians uh vinnie apice from black sabbath and dio on drums and tony franklin from the firm and blue murder on bass such a great bass player dude and uh Jeff Scott Soto and Russell Allen um, sang the lead vocals on it, who are two of the best singers in rock today, man. And yeah. and uh, Derek Sherinian did the keyboards on it. So uh, it's, you know, they all helped me out, man. I really, I owe them a lot for helping uh, bring these songs to life. So That's killer. At the end of your EPK, too, there's a fade-out jam, and you're just doing this wonderful solo. What Do you remember what song that is on the last bit of your EPK video? I'm sure you were involved in editing that thing. <laughs> Say Goodbye to the Sun is the, the end of it, yeah. I just love that feel. Let's play a little bit of that, if you don't mind. Like, whatever, just... Boom, jeez. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Killer, man. This is like before noon. The coffee hasn't even kicked in. Fucking <laughs> crushing it. How many different influences go into creating a solo like that for you? Where's that coming from? Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of it comes... That one is like kind of like Sonic Chaos. So it comes from, uh, I guess, the, the opening stuff being kind of the more the pentatonic, bendy stuff. I think that opening bend... Well, no, that would probably go back to a George Lynch thing if I really had to trace back the lineage of that. That kind of half-step bend where it resolves. Played a lot of docking in my first band in my life when I was like 15. Covered a lot of that stuff. And then the outside run that follows that would come probably from like a Brett Garset influence, a fusion influence, my sort of warped version of his chromaticism, legato stuff. And then the muted pull-off stuff. I don't know, man, just straight ahead, hard rock. And then like the octave tapping thing at the end would all definitely go back to TJ Helmerich. Um, I was lucky enough to take lessons from him as a kid and he was so great at the eight finger thing. Just great. And uh, um, so a lot of that stuff is there for me in my own kind of weird hard rock version these days. You know, I mean, he's so amazing with that stuff on, on fusion records and so smooth. And I didn't pursue that technique to the same degree that he did. I just use it in my own kind of the hard rock setting and usually use it just to burn. <laughs> and it's worked okay for me. It sure sounds great. Now, let's go back to the beginning because let's figure out where you freaking came from, sir. Um, did you come from a musical family? Yeah, my parents are classical musicians, so they had me um, playing cello when I was three and piano when I was seven. And, you know, like most little boys, I just wanted to be a baseball player. I was like, what's this all about? I didn't really care for it all that much. Um, like sports? How tall are you? 6'3". Uh, right. But yeah, that I think when I heard ACDC, that's when everything really changed, you know. Now, hold on a second. What was it like being in a musical household? Did they take you to concerts like you see them? Did they play in orchestras? This is amazing. Well, they were always just, there was just always music around the house, them literally playing it, not us listening to it. But I think that was good for me in the sense that my sister and I would take the melodies from all the classical music that they'd be practicing and make up silly little words to it and things like that and sing along. So that helped us develop a sense of pitch and rhythm. And of course, I actually learned how to read a little bit of music being young. And um, so, yeah, I think there was lots of fundamentals that developed from it, even though I didn't think it was all that cool at the time. Um, I'm really glad now just developing a sense of all that stuff at a young age. And, uh, and I think even as an older person, like, you know, just the fact that they actually understand what's happening musically on all my gigs that they come to has been good for me because I, I always have a voice in the back of my head telling me whether or not it was really good or not. I can't just get away with the, you know, oh, the fans thought it was cool. I have like a side of me that's like, musically, was it really good <laughs> or, or was it not executed well? I think a lot of great guitar players and great musicians have that side. It's always that one person, even if they're invisible out there. Now, what what was the Angus moment that caught your attention? How old were you? I think I was 11. I was in seventh grade. It was a combination of things. I don't really have the first moment, but I definitely was like his showmanship and energy was like half of what appealed to me. Obviously, I Back in Black was definitely the first like audio experience of like being like, wow, this is awesome. Like, you know, first band I got, that's the first time I really got rock music and we just went, wow, that's killer. I mean, not that I really cared for classical either yet at that age. Um, like I said, I was pretty much like most little boys. I was like, I just want to play sports or whatever. And, but yeah, ACDC really changed everything for me. And I, and then when I got my first guitar, I was really lucky to start out with a teacher who, uh, just taught songs. 
that was a great way to start because I, I would encourage anybody like who's going to have their kids start or any kids that listen to this that are going to start. Um, the best thing to do is learn your favorite music out of the gate. It's uh, um, so many parents think the best thing to do is discipline your kids and use it like a source of discipline. But unless you're going to be a professional, there's really no sense in that. It's like music is supposed to be fun. And so if your kids enjoy some music, I would encourage everybody to find teachers that will teach them that music because that's when they really start to get excited about it and realize, wow, it's cool. I know how to make the music that I enjoy. So but I remember learning just the riff to Paranoid. That was the first thing I learned, my first guitar lesson. And I must have just played the main riff of it, not even the intro or the, you know, the B riff or anything, but I just played that main riff like a million times, you know, just like one riff over and over. But I think that, again, there's your best finger exercise. If you're really looking for some way, it's better than teaching a kid a quasi-chromatic exercise that they'll spend two minutes doing because they're bored and they don't like the sound of it and they don't think it's cool. Uh, it's better to have you know, someone like, you know, me or your, uh, you know, myself or, or yourself who learn a song and we play it for hours and then that gets your hands going. And I think that's a lot of what has to happen in the early going to um, alleviate that frustration. So you were growing up in Chicago area or something? Yeah, I grew up in the bur- Southwest burbs of Chicago. So junior high or something, you're starting to play with other guys and other people and maybe start jamming. You had to start a band back then. Yeah, I think out of the gate, I couldn't really find whole bands. So I used to rehearse a lot with drummers so it would be just me and them and we'd either play cover songs that we knew or literally just jam, which was a great experience. And I still have that in me with whatever band I'm in where I love to look at the drummer and jam. And uh, I just had the best experience on this tour, you know, with Tommy Aldridge playing drums with Whitesnake to every night turn around and see Tommy back there and go, this, that's just too cool, man. I, there wasn't one show where I didn't think that, where I turned around to jam with him and went, now I'm jamming with Tommy Aldridge. This is so fun. <laughs> that's, yeah, that would, I mean, I saw him with Ozzy when I was 12. Yeah. Yeah, he's just the best guy in the world too. I don't know if you've ever met TA, but he's he's just such a nice guy, man. He was so good to me and so yeah, it was an awesome experience doing this first leg of the tour with him so far. Any fun moments with Tommy you remember on this tour or on stage. Uh, Tommy's just great with one-liners, man. He's just great with cracking you up. Or he, he's really quick with when we're getting ready to do the band bow. Just when you're feeling comfortable and trying to look cool for the fans or something or waving, Tommy will be the guy to snap his stick up and get you in the nuts and the butt crack. Um, and so that'll change your uh, expression in a hurry, let me tell you. When you're when you're thinking you're, you're pretty cool up there at the end of the show and people are going nuts, Tommy will get you in the, the ass crack or the nuts with his drumstick and change the game. All drummers are the same. We have a guy named Donnie Baldwin who's been known to do that. Great drummer. So um, now, what was your next level of playing when you were a kid that you remember sort of hitting? What was the next plateau? Well, the first band band uh, I was in, I think was when I was 15. I joined, so it was finally a full band that played a show or played shows. We really did get out and there was a little bit of an all ages scene. So we would gig like every couple of weeks or something like that. And that was cool. We were pretty... I guess it was the norm back then to be a kid and be like writing original music in bands. And uh, so that was my first like studio experience and, and first live experience. And I believe I still have cassettes in my mom's basement of the the recording of that stuff of me in the studio at 15. It was just absolutely horrendous stuff. But uh, Do you remember any riffs from that band or anything? There was like one that we thought was so cool that was like basically just nothing more than a version of the verse to Crazy Train. You know, it was like an A major thing. But at that age, you find like any chords that fit together and you you think it's cool. And I don't know if I really remember any exact ones, dude. I mean, it's been been a long time. (laughs) Now, at what point did you start 
learning from TJ Helmerich? Right at that, actually, maybe just before I was in my first band, because what happened is that first teacher that taught me a lot of songs, I just was like, I had just a total passion for it, man. So he, a couple of us were really getting to the point where we were like, what about solos? What about solos? And this guy really wasn't much in that department. He was great with kids and great with teaching songs. But so they hired a second teacher at this store that we were taking lessons at, and uh, it was TJ Helmerich. So, I mean, it was just this little mall store in Orland Park, Illinois. So it was amazing to, uh, he came in there and he was in like a local band at the time called The Law. They were known for him and the other guitar player used to play Eruption at the same time on stage. And like, we all knew this in the local scene. It was talked about like legendary stuff, you know? (laughs) And uh, so anyway, I was super excited when they hired him and he was great about being able to transcribe any solos and he was the guy to teach me the modes and all that stuff. But I think even literally taught me the proper technique to like bend a string. And so I go way back with TJ. It's really kind of fun to, um, to look back on that kind of stuff for, for both of us. And, uh, he's a, he's an awesome player and great musician all the way around. Great engineer and great guy. He's hilarious too, man. Does he have the warpedest sense of humor or something? Let me see if I can find this last text I got from him completely out of the blue. Yeah, and very abstract. I'm quite certain. (laughs) Here it is. Yeah. Jude, today, hurl a huge hunk of cheese at an unsuspecting quail. (laughs) Like, what the heck? I hadn't heard from him in six months. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I love that guy. So uh, what else were you, what kind of solos did you start learning from him? Uh, I think the first lesson with him, I learned the solo to Crazy Train. You know, that stuff, Randy Rhodes stuff, uh, Eddie Van Halen, Scorpions I loved. I really started out just into kind of hard rock. Everything you'd expect, ACDC, Sabbath, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, Scorpions. And as I got older, I began to open my mind a little more into like, you know, the more melodic bands and stuff. And What kind of guitar were you rocking back then? I started out in the very early days on an Electra Weststone. And then I actually, my second guitar is a Kramer Beretta that I bought off of TJ, actually. He wanted to sell it so just like one of those eddie van halen single emg um yeah yeah, just one one volume knob and what color was it you said black and that's still in my mom's i was hoping you were gonna say hot pink or you know fluorescent green but okay nothing that bad i think yeah i mean in terms of embarrassing gear from back in the day the worst thing i did was i was one of those guys who thought the gk 250 mls were so happening you know so in that first band i think i was trying to rock that and um i remember our singer going just play through a marshall and i was like are you kidding man this is the, the new thing it has a chorus button on it and a <laughs> reverb button you know and now looking back i'm quite yeah. certain that my tone was the absolute worst just for a second what is your gig evolved what is your rig evolved to now what are you rocking with white snake in terms of your amps and effects? um i've been really digging on those the friedman be 100 head so i use that for this opening leg and those sound killer and used it actually on my my whole record as well the joel hooks just 13 record dying to live and i love that amp and uh yeah it's really a great amp and uh so that i kept it pretty simple that and then i used a fractal axe effects 2 for any effects just in the loop not the four cable method or any of that um as i didn't really engage any um drive pedals or amps or anything of that nature so that i love the effects on the fractal i mean i think it sounds killer it's and it was really nice even down to um obviously we had the, the the bpms for all the songs i got from tommy aldridge so even on rhythms just to have the little slap rhythm that you'll put down like an eighth note like yeah. one repeat it's really nice to have that lock up with the tempo when you have little breaks yeah. and things like that and and to have all the bpms line up for solos in terms of um 
no need to tap tempo or anything, but just literally have a patch written for each song. And I just interviewed uh, James Valentine from Maroon 5, and he's doing the same thing. Got the axe effects, just using the effects portion. Yeah. No, he's got killer tube heads, killer tube heads as well. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have to use any preamp models or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. And then the only other thing I really used, I, I kept it super simple, but there was one pedal, this T Miranda, a small company from Brazil. They had given me this uh, Rotoface pedal that I used on the record and it just sounds great. So there's something about having a pedal on the front end that totally colors the tone that can be nice to have. So I did engage that on some of the songs and, and cool sound and pedal, but that was it, dude. I kept it pretty pretty simple does tommy start the songs on like are you guys starting a fixed tempo every time does he play to a click or just count out for the click yeah i mean we're he just gets basically a a click that no one else is getting on most of it from uh the drum tech and obviously feeding it through the monitor guy you know but the drum tech is starting and stopping the clicks um for him and there there were a couple songs like forevermore is an acoustic song where i requested the click in at the top um I usually right. find that's a good failsafe. That way, there's never going to be a night where the singer can say that was too slow or too fast. <laughs> good um, call. Yeah, you're just always solid, even though it's, um, you know, it might feel a little bit like you're practicing, but it's just nice to have it be consistent night to night. Okay, first of all, BE100 from Friedman. Why are musicians and manufacturers so sick? That obviously, if those who know the amp sounds for Brown Eye, I played that amp. It's amazing. I know we don't have it here right now, but could you maybe play one of your favorite riffs that play with White Snake right here? And we'll picture it. Oh man, I would love to hear that through that Friedman amp. Seriously. Yeah, it's a little bigger sounding through the Friedman, but uh, you know, you never know. Might might go with the micro cube on the next leg. <laughs> it's amazing, like with just the right player, just right here, and the attitude in your fingers and the mojo, how much it really comes through, even through that little four-inch speaker, whatever. Oh, thanks, Jude. Your nose is growing right now. <laughs> I'm serious, man. You know, its tone is in your fingers, really. I mean, what kind of pick do you have right there? Uh, it's a stainless steel pick. Yeah, I thought it looked um, like that. Yeah, just made from this. Uh, I guess a company that I found them online. That's just called. Yeah. Alice. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what I've been using for a while. That was really traced back to Brad Gillis and Night Ranger. Brad was using metal picks and Jeff did kind of on and off. I think he never fully committed. And um, so it's kind of a Night Ranger thing that hasn't left. I'm just like, just really kind of used to the feel of them and the way they sound now. And um, when they're thinner, they really dig between the grooves of the strings. So um, you get great pick slides. And yeah. and great for punchy rhythms like any any high gain stuff. It's really nice to have the sound of the stainless steel. So then let's go back. Let's keep going. I'm really curious how you did all this stuff. Did you then head out to Musicians Institute after high school, or what did you do? Uh, I did a couple years of community college, and just basically at that point was only playing classical guitar. Um, so nice. I did two two years of nothing but that, where I really didn't touch the electric all that much. And yeah, then I went to GIT, um, which was a great experience. And what was Hollywood like for you when you first got there? What was your impressions of the town? I mean, it's always kind of a shock when students come out there. Yeah, that was a good experience for me. I think life-wise, uh, that first time to sit in a room, I think my class at the beginning was like 500 guitar players or something. So when you're sitting in that main hall and you're looking around, that's the first time where it's not like your little town and your four or five guys in your high school who can play. And, and you know, all of a sudden you realize just how many people, like that's just one little 
middle class coming in. Uh, but to sit in a room with that many guys, uh, it really starts to help you see the grand scheme of things uh, in terms of what it's going to take commitment-wise to have a career and, and be able to do what you want to do. Yeah. And then who were some of your huge influences there? I know TJ was there teaching maybe at that point. Yeah. Well, there were some great rock players in my class, man. I went there with Pete Thorne, who's uh, gone on to play with a bunch of people and awesome guitar player. Yeah, and like Melissa Etheridge and um, Chris Cornell. Yeah, Chris Cornell and... Man, like everybody, that dude, he's played with Don everybody. Henley. Yeah, Don Henley. And Joy Basu is in my class as well. Yeah, and he's, he's had great. a great career and played with a lot of people. So it's been a great a place to have gone to school just simply for that as well. These are people that I've kept in touch with and not by any design. You're not thinking when you're 19 years old, like, man, I'm going to go here for networking, you know, but... It doesn't end up being that way. And I think MI is a, a place I'm, I'm glad I went to from the standpoint that they've been supportive of my career as well. They're usually pretty proud of their alumni and their achievements. And so I feel like they've been a great partner in the growth of my career. And, and I really am proud of my time there, even though I, I wasn't the greatest, quite honestly, about all the curriculum. But I did play in a, a boatload of guitar while I was there. And just for that, that's it's worth it. Just to, I think it was eight, 10 hours a day, man, while I was there. For that wow. year. So then you, did you come back to the Chicago area? I stayed out there another year in LA and worked at uh, Cherokee Studios, which is another great life experience. And things got a little squirrely right around that time. It was right around the time of the the, um, the Rodney King riots. And it was, uh, it was a rough place to live, man, during that Reagan-Bush era. The, the homeless situation out there and the crack situation was just like everywhere. It was just out of control. So um, yeah, I just kind of at, I think, 21, just thought maybe the better thing for me is to go back to Chicago, play some gigs and teach and take it from there, which I kind of regret and kind of don't because it still kept me on the guitar all the time. So I began a stretch for years there where I taught 70 plus students a week um, for years and just gigged with my own bands, which were Black Bison and then the Resin Diggers shortly after that. We just do like bar gigs and things like that. Nothing fancy. Now we have to, of course, talk about her. And it's wonderful that she's not here so we can totally roast her. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me how you met Kathy Richardson, who I play with and and coincidentally, I think I met you independently of her, but you were her lead guitar player for years. She's now the lead singer of Jefferson Starship. And I also do solo gigs with her. So I play with her in both those bands. Where'd you meet her? I actually met her at the one of the stores I was teaching. I was teaching at this place called Pro-Am Music. And I think they hired her to teach piano there, oddly enough, looking back. Or maybe it was to help out. And uh, She's very musical. She can play anything. You should see her on Cowbell. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever seen her on Cowbell, oh, now dude, that you mentioned she it. She murders it, almost literally. But yeah, I, I man, it's taken me back a ways here, but... I think we just got along and we're talking back then at the store. And then when I think her guitar player quit her local band and her solo band, which was doing really well. I mean, she had a good scene carved out there with playing her own music um, in the, the Chicago scene. I mean, play like once or twice a weekend. Um, for a good size audience in her own music. And so it was a great band for me to join. It was, I would say, the first time I began to kind of regularly perform for a decent sized audience, you know, like everything before then was probably very spotty and unsuccessful. It was, it was really great in that regard. And Kathy's a great musician. So, I mean, it was really, it was good for me to learn a little more about playing that style of music too. I was kind of more from the 
I guess like initially hard rock and then a little more from the jam, like playing whatever I wanted, fusion-y and solo-y and shreddy. I don't I hate that term shred, but a little more from that. So being in Kathy's band was better for actually learning how to figure out like the proper part for a song and stuff like that, if that makes sense. Totally, dude. Now, I have played many gigs with her. She's awesome. I first got attracted to her music because of her incredible voice, which of course got her on, well, an off-Broadway technically, but I think of it as Broadway, Rock in the House and the Love Janice musical. All that stuff. But I, in the course of playing with her, learned some of your parts. I don't even know if you remember this part in the song Miracle, but I think she credits you with it. And it's really cool part. Let me show you. It's just like a G, C, D chord progression. Mm-hmm. But what you did to it was so cool. So instead of playing this... Uh, I think I know what it is. I hate it. Wait, how could you hate this part? It's so cool. Hold on a sec. Instead of doing that, I don't know if I do it anywhere near the way you did it, but this is what I came up with to imitate you. Yeah, there's Something an easier like way to do that ending one. <laughs> yeah, show oh. it to me, brother. Oh yeah, just a total cascade. Love it. Yeah, see, but I hate that because it, it really wasn't the best part for the song. In all honesty, it's too active and it's too <laughs> much. It's too much. I, I really wasn't the best at that uh, stuff. Um, it was kind of like learning as I went, you know. But uh, I, I kind of got down that like the parts the parts playing style better after her band unfortunately for her but what do you mean um just in terms of like understanding when you need to play a part that would stand out usually between the vocal lines or um something where it's not stepping on the vocal at all and leaving room when there is the vocal or um just basically understanding how to play a lot less but play the right things well luckily that part was an instrumental break i think so i think it was yeah but so I probably would have written guilty. something a little more of like a actual straight ahead hooky melody in there if I had it back. I know what you mean. Like the best guitar parts you can kind of sing or something. Yeah. And that part wouldn't be singable unless you went da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
yeah, so that, I had that run and really in New York, I just sort of, when that ended, I just kind of had a philosophy of like, I'm just going to stay busy no matter what musically, whether it be like writing with people. I just n- nonstop stayed busy. Didn't make a lot of money, but I just had the philosophy of like, if I'm out, people are eventually word will get around enough that I'm a good guy to work with, whatever, and find, you know, hopefully some gainful employment in there at some point. And one of the things I did was sub for a friend of mine who lived a couple blocks away from me. He was doing pit stuff just straight ahead. Like, you know, uh, the first show I subbed for him was The Boy From Oz. And he had said to me, he's like, you you want to sub for me on the shows I do? And I was like, man, I haven't done that since like high school. Like, you know, I don't even know if I'd be any good at it. And it's a scary prospect of charts and all mm-hmm. that too. Yeah, yeah. And I was always under the impression the way it worked in the New York Broadway scene was you had to sight read that stuff. Like, you know, you're going to just walk right in and open up the book and play and that's that. But it doesn't really work that way. The dirty little secret is you get a copy of the music, you get a copy and all audio recording of the show of usually that person's part soloed even or up in the mix a bit and you're able to rehearse at home for a few weeks usually the standard is kind of like three weeks of somebody working on a book and i should preface it with or say that that's if you're in the rhythm section um horn players and string players completely different things those guys walk in and sight read it Um, right drummers and and bass players and guitar players and piano players usually rehearse it for quite some time before they set foot in there and Anyway, so blah, 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 I subbed for my friend J.J. McGeehan, his name is, on a few shows, and I ended up, the last one I subbed for him on was a show called Tarzan, and the keyboard player on that show became, he got hired as the music supervisor for the show Rock of Ages when it came to town. So when it came time for him to hire a band, he thought, I remember one of J.J.'s subs being a rock guy, and this is, he didn't know I was in Night Ranger or anything at that point, and looked me up on MySpace when that was the social media of choice. Right. That's and, how I uh, met Kathy, actually, I think. On MySpace? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and he gave me the gig, which is uh, was an awesome experience. Great experience, man. For anyone who hasn't seen that, describe that show. I mean, it even became a major motion picture, but what was it? You did that for how many years? Six years. Over six years. And you had a you weren't just in the pit on this one. Tell us what you were doing. Uh, it was on stage performance. So, yeah, I mean, there were some cool moments. I'd begin and end the show with guitar solos, essentially. And uh, the rest of it, you'd kind of be on the band platform at the back of the stage. And there were some speaking lines and things like that. It was just really great from my perspective to have a gig eight shows a week that I could take off from whenever I wanted a tour. So during that whole time, that whole six plus year run, I was touring with Night Ranger and Trans-Siberian Orchestra. No problem taking off whatsoever. I had six guys that I would schedule to fill in for me, and uh, that was my responsibility. But that it basically allowed me to have a gig essentially every day for like six years, man. You know, so I'd come off a tour and I'd be playing the next day. No rest for the wicked, my friend. Yeah, and it really—it's one other great thing. I mean, it was obviously music that I liked, and I mean, no kid starts guitar. I didn't start guitar going, man. I hope someday I'm in a Broadway show. But it did—it did give me the opportunity to play music that I like and be on stage a lot, which I think is super important for people who are going to make their living that way. And uh, it also helped me cultivate relationships with all the guys from the bands. I mean, for instance, there's no way I would have filled in for Mick Jones and Foreigner if Mick and Phil Carson, their manager, Foreigner's manager, hadn't been to the show and seen me playing Foreigner's music in Rock of Ages. That was why I got that opportunity. Wow. So um, there's lots of stuff like that. I mean, there was lots of great moments. Like when Night Ranger was out with um, Journey and Foreigner in 2011, that tour stopped here in New York City. I took 
obviously took the night to go into Rock of Ages and play it, and everyone from all the bands came down to the and, show. And Paris so Hilton. I mean, oh, many, many, many celebrities <laughs> came to the show. But to be able to play, you know, "Don't Stop Believing" with Neil Sean and all of Journey sitting in the house is really cool. It's fun, and you know, as long as you keep the right mindset on it, which uh, you know, for the most part, I did and just make make a cool living and have fun with it and uh, but it was an awesome experience definitely a game changer financially for me too I think going into Rock of Ages I was still probably in the land of like struggling musician to a degree and then uh, getting to the end I wouldn't define myself as struggling anymore I'm not set for life but it definitely helped me um, feel like I got my feet on the ground a little bit more like I got a chance to be able to get through life doing this very cool you saw a possible light at the end of the tunnel oh, exactly now, did you ever have any mishaps or any crazy shit happen on stage at that show me oh man. dude every, every every show man i hate this question though because you're essentially saying like what what's the thing that made you look the dumbest in your oh, life it could but, not necessarily um, you no no well yeah the, oh there was all kinds of stuff i mean with as many shows as we did we did over two thousand shows there was times where actors would miss entrances and no one would say their line so you'd just be waiting and waiting and the meanwhile in front of house they would turn on the actor's wireless mic and you'd hear them talking up in their dressing room candidly to themselves sometimes or making random noises and um but as far as me i had a moment the band platform was pretty small and so i remember having a moment of like trying to get into a rock stance and like my legs are pretty freaking long i just went a little too far and my right foot went off the edge of the band platform um, so I sort of like, well, I fell basically not entirely off the band platform, but down on to my ass and kind of rolled back onto the other guitar players pedal setup. Um, so it wasn't the worst thing in the world that could have happened in terms of me actually making it through the song. I kept playing and did, but the disaster was, is that I had hit the other guitar players pedal onto a, a patch that wasn't gated. On, the, on his fractal. So it came time for the end of this song where it's supposed to get quiet and the lead characters are going to have this gentle moment where they kiss or gaze in each other's eyes and all you hear is... And I think it had a phaser on it too. And so that everybody in the house is looking around going, what's happening? They're looking at and they see like, me like trying to get off off my ass, you know, trying not to look like a fool. Hey, man, it's a, everyone falls down on stage at one point. Or, oh, I yeah. did that same thing. Man, there was an yeah. invisible hole in the stage and my left leg just went yeah. down into it. I'm, I just had one on the White Snake Tour, too. I'm lucky, I just, I'm, not, I'm lucky I'm not a soprano. I We just had a moment in Iowa where... You know, the, the infamous white line on the edge of the stage. There's They always give you a little room on the front. It's With always tape, and then you've got six inches where you're really going, or even a foot, where you're like, that's still good. I'm yeah. I'm you know going to be able to step on that. It's like a train platform. Everybody kind of goes past the line. Well, stage right on our tour, there was floor past the white line, but the trick was there was no actual floor. It was just black rubber. So I stepped onto it and just went right through it and just like walked right off the side of the stage stage and like fell into the monitor board basically and hopped right back up and kept playing. I was, I was like just embarrassing, you know, what are you going to do? And you just laugh and just go, okay, I just fell off the stage and, and, uh, thankfully there's no YouTube footage or anything. Oh yeah. That's the first nowadays. That's everyone's first thought. Not is my ankle broken? Yeah. Not is my guitar broken? Yeah, but yeah. Is this going to be on YouTube? Yeah. Forget health. Forget health. Yeah. How much of a jackass am I going to look like and to how many people? You know, I was just talking to Billy Sheehan in the last episode and uh, he, they moved the staircase where it was, you know, those, they have movable staircases and 
Yeah, he fell right off a tall stage. Yeah. It's his inevitable. Number, his number one bass got smashed. It really? Oh, no way. Well, he's got a new number one now, but yeah, that was oh, his bass for some years. Oh, dude. The bass saved him. <laughs> wow. Well, thankfully, yeah, the only thing that happened, uh, I was playing one of the nice custom Les Pauls I just had made for the White Snake Tour, and thankfully, the volume knob is the only thing that got broken. That's what crashed into the monitor board, so I got really lucky. The volume knob cracked, and we just put a new volume knob on, and... End of story there. But yeah. wow, to lose a base over a wipeout, ouch. Now, how did you, just backing up a little bit, because there's so much to catch up on, but how did you end up getting this great gig with Night Ranger? Uh, so that actually kind of came from my time in Chicago, because in addition to gigging with Kathy Richardson, there was this guy there named Jim Peterick, who co-founded the, the band Ides of March, and also the band Survivor. And he's really known as the dude who wrote Eye of the Tiger, basically. And so he has these you know annual shows in the Chicago area called World Stage, where he has a lot of artists he's worked with or written with, or is just friends with come out and sing their hits and i was in the house band so like i said it would only happen once a year but i got to play with a lot of great people through that rick emmett from triumph and uh, don barnes from 38 special alan parsons the list would really go on and on i could take a long time but kelly kagi the drummer from night ranger was always on that gig so he'd come out and do the night ranger songs and i would see him once a year for i bet it was seven years before we even had the discussion right um he sings like uh sister christian yeah he wrote and and sings Sister Christian and every year we'd do Sister Christian but he would also sing some of the songs that Jack Blade sings as they're just Night Ranger hits like Don't Tell Me You Love Me and Rock in America and so I think he always knew I could play the parts and we always got along and I think it was just timing where because of doing the show Love Janice on the Road I'd grown my hair out long um, as I've been through many images and they've always been image challenged. So for some reason, I like, I had my hair long. I think I had the right look for doing it at the time. I just, all of a sudden I, you know, his wife was the one to say, well, Jeff isn't in the band anymore. I was like, what? Like, no way. How can you not, how can you have Night Ranger and not have Jeff Watson and Brad Gillis? I just thought that was like, that's crazy talk, you know? But she said, well, Reb Beach is doing the gig right now. And I was like, oh, well, Reb's incredible. So that's awesome. And and she said, but he's going to need to leave. And so I think that night I had a, a couple drinks too many and I was like putting my cell phone in Kelly's face telling him, call me, you should have called me, man. I can do the eight finger thing and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, lo and behold, like a week later, I think Reb had told them there's a show I can't make and they were either going to have to cancel this show or hire a, somebody like me who was going to learn like 30 songs and come in and do it. And that's what I had been doing on the world stage gigs is like learning basically 30 songs on no rehearsal and going and doing a whole show which obviously takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication. So, you know, like, for instance, Night Ranger wasn't going to want to say, let's get a new guitar player for this one show and rehearse for two weeks. That just doesn't happen. It's just too much on, you know, they'd rather cancel the gig. So I learned their set and went in and basically had a show with them. Uh, really like kind of just meeting him. It was like, hi, right. how you doing? And we'll step out on stage and play a gig with him. That's awesome. Or wasn't there a moment where they were kind of checking you out in the car over, like you were showing them? The yeah, solos? yeah, yeah. On the way from the, God, I can't believe you remember that. Yeah, on the way from the airport, it's like we all got our guitars and I rode in the car with the guitar tech and Brad Gillis. Brad was up front and, and he said, so yeah, man, you know, he's giving me the skinny on the gig and he said, and then when it gets the eight finger thing, man, just do whatever you can, kind of, you know, and I was like, no, man, I can do it. And he was like, you can do it? Let me see. He didn't believe me at all. So I got out this same guitar I'm holding right now, pulled it out in the back seat next to me and showed him. And he got really, he went, he got all excited that I'd be able to pull off the Rockin' America solo. No chance we could see two seconds of uh, that. It's just such a crazy thing. 
Uh, now that my right hand is all seized up here, <laughs> give, me, give me one second. It's amazing to watch you just throw oh, that down. God, I haven't played that in a year, over a year, so a little rough. It's like riding a bicycle for a guy like you. No, no I, not really. I mean, it's yeah, like I said, it's been a, been a little while. And my heart, when my hard drive gets full, man, stuff gets deleted for sure. Well, it's so cool that you were able to just learn Jeff's amazing part and throw it down. Now, what was Brad's reaction when you're sitting in that van and he and he sees you do that? Because he didn't even think you could do it. Like, no one could do it. Yeah, I mean, he thought it was cool and that was, uh, yeah. I mean, now after playing it rough, I feel embarrassed to say, but I mean, I felt like I, I was right for the gig. I, I have felt to tell like you, I, if you, if you think that was rough, like for everyone listening, they're like, whoa, I want to hear it when it's polished because that really sounded good. Oh, God. But yeah, I, I mean, I felt like I was right for the gig in that regard and had a similar look and was and already my main guitar was a gold top Les Paul, it just seemed to be a bit of a no-brainer that vibe-wise, and it would work out, and and so yeah, I think after that gig, which went really well, I mean, we had this like just like wow, that was great. I think they were just elated because they were bringing in somebody they'd never played with, and it could have been a train wreck really for all intents and purposes. So I think uh, to have the gig go well and just gave everybody this really positive, cool feeling about it, and and uh, eventually I was given the gig and began a seven-year run with them. Yeah, you guys played all over the world i guess yeah i went yeah really everywhere with those we had a lot of great experiences with them we made two studio albums and a live acoustic album together and yeah i mean too many shows to count but i would i guess uh, if i had to venture a guess probably somewhere about four or five hundred shows or something like yeah. that a lot of shows now those guys you know they sold 14 million records or something they're very ambitious hardworking. they're inspiring and did you learn anything what did you walk away from after seven years with these cats there was a lot dude i mean i learned a lot on that gig for sure i mean i think one of the things definitely from brad is a lot of the stage presence i remember going to japan with them really early on where i was still a little bit in that mode of like practicing a solo and playing it really clean and um looking down at your guitar neck while you're playing and things like that and i remember standing next to him on some of the guitar solos or the double solos and looking up and just seeing the entire audience looking at brad and not at me and i was like oh hell no i'm not going out like that man like i gotta start getting some of this together because brad's looking out at them and putting on a show and and uh so brad was a great kick in the ass in that department um and he was all, just really a lot of fun too to work with in a guitar team uh stage presence wise because i could like do anything with him bump into him or hit him or i mean we we're you know roughhousing it's like uh you know he was like big brother for me over seven years so um you know i got a lot of love for brad for sure he, he taught me a lot and I learned, uh, yeah, more than I could probably sit in the interview and, and tell you from those guys. It was a good seven years of them, for sure. Yeah, you know, and I, I actually interviewed Brad, I think it was episode two of this show. Great interview. I enjoyed all his stories, but I told him, and I'm telling you, you were still in the band. I saw you guys at the Hollywood Bowl. You hooked me up with some tickets, and you guys were playing with Foreigner and Journey. And I was really surprised that you guys, the opening band, kind of threw down the hardest. Like, you guys were still running around like it was your 
first ever big tour and you really put on a show. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think definitely Jack and Brad are great performers and the way that that stage setup is with Kelly being stage left set up sideways, the drummer, for those that aren't all that familiar with Night Ranger, it kind of opens up the deck for a lot of movement guitar wise. Uh-huh. I mean, really between that and when I did have to hold the audience in Rock of Ages and in Trans-Siberian Orchestra where you're given basically a section of the arena to entertain on your own for any place that you are on the stage. All that stuff playing nonstop for the last, you know, whatever it's been, six, seven years of that kind of thing has been really good in terms of just feeling like be it turning myself into like an entertaining guitar player to watch and not just somebody who's like up there playing the songs. And so, which I think is, it's important. I've, I feel like it's half the thing. You come to see a band and, and it's always a little disappointing to me to see a band up there that looks like they're just there for the, the money and bored. And, right. and I mean, people want to come like relive with, with acts like Whitesnake or Night Ranger. They, they want to come and relive the good memories of those days. They don't want to come and get all bummed out and think everybody looks old and tired and makes them feel old and tired. They want everybody to look young and have energy and be youthful. And so I think to do that to the best of our abilities is is important. So when you're in the, like, say, like Trans-Siberian Orchestra, that's a monster show. Every night is an arena. How do you entertain, as you say, one big slice of that arena that's on, you say you're on stage left? What do you do? How do you connect with that? That would be... I would guess 4,000 people. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just movement and having the right attitude within the music. And uh, definitely with a show like that, a lot of positivity and a lot of smiling and not totally taking yourself too serious and being like, you know, you have to be able to, you know, play nice and smiley um, with the kids and the the families and things like that as well. It's definitely a across the board, all demographics kind of show come to Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So, um I don't know. It's a combination of factors, but for whatever reason, that's something I tend to genuinely enjoy. I think going into gigs, I have a lot of um, probably nervousness and anxiousness. And and when I'm on stage, I don't have any of that and tend to really enjoy connecting with the audience and enjoy the experience of it. And, uh, and that's, uh, it's just one of the things I dig about my job, man. I do feel lucky to be able to make a living playing. And so any of that support or acknowledgement you're getting from people, I I feel a deep sense of, um, being grateful for that. I'm not articulating that properly, but um, you know what I mean. It feeds you, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you always look like a lion that just got out of its cage when you're on stage. I love that. (laughs) You just look like you're just like a lion. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, tell me me more about this. Like, I've never seen TSO. I've seen the videos and stuff. It's just hard to wrap my brain around. It's just such a monster thing. The stage is off the hook. What is this thing? What's it like up there? It's awesome. I mean, that again, there's a great learning experience in that you're playing for really, really large audiences. So there's a lot of pressure and playing. You have to play really clean. That's a lot of that gig. There's not a lot of room for, oh, he, that there was, everybody stopped and you did that string slide or no, 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 no. You know, you need to stop and everything needs to be tight. So, um, it's a great experience with working with clicks and in ears and things like that. And, um, just the professionalism it takes to be able to pull that gig off is a learning experience. It was for me. Um, there's a big difference between playing, um, four or five shows a week with night Ranger or whatever I was doing or weekends, uh, a lot of times with night Ranger to doing eight, two and a half hour shows a week and having a meet and greet and a signing line every night as well. Um, so it's like the Marines of rock, you know, you, you're, right. you have to really save your energy and make sure you're taking care of yourself on that tour. Otherwise you'll get your, um, S H I T handed to you 
you really have to be careful not to uh, deplete your energy. It's a hard gig. I think people don't realize how much work goes into being in a touring band. <laughs> That's a lot when you, I mean, people can say, well, whatever, but you're, you're on stage for five hours a day in front of thousands of people, which is pressure. That's like being really, really on, obviously. You're, you have a heightened sense of awareness and anxiety to a degree. So yeah, I think it, it takes it out of you. And yeah, that gig is great for that. I mean, once you get done with that and you go back to playing four shows a week that are an hour and a half set or something that feels really really easy <laughs> quite yeah. frankly how did you end up playing in white snake that's a huge gig yeah so uh, well i heard that doug left the band which coincidentally doug, doug aldrich great doug aldrich player. yeah him and i had been texting the night before it came out online and we didn't talk about it. He just said, oh, there's some news coming. Doug and I have always texted about our kids um, back and forth. We kind of kept it more about family and just being friendly with each other. And he's a great guy and a great guitar player. I have a lot of respect for him. And I just read on Twitter, basically, the next day. I was like, wouldn't Joel Hoster be good as a replacement or whatever? And I was like, a replacement for what? And I like, you know, tracked it down. And I was like, oh, Doug left Whitesnake. And I did think, it's not all that often you hear of a gig where you think you'd be a good fit. If Kerry King left Slayer tomorrow, I don't know that I would put out an email to management, you know? Right. Uh, so I thought, yeah, that, that makes sense. That could be cool. And I'll put out some feelers and see what happens. And I didn't really hear anything back. I wrote, I think it was the tour manager and the manager who I was able to just get contact info from mutual friends and stuff. And Reb Beach, obviously, who I had met filling in for him and Night Ranger. And he was in Whitesnake. And Reb is, is. is now the, yeah, the band leader in Whitesnake now. And so anyway, I didn't hear anything back. And then I think some well-respected people recommended me to David Coverdale. Eddie Trunk, I think, recommended me to him. Like, if you're not going to get John Sykes back, this is your guy. And, and uh, I think Phil Carson, Foreigner's manager, recommended me to him. And that led to us meeting for basically just like an audition. But David watched so much of me on YouTube that I think he already knew the playing end of things was going to be cool. He just wanted to make sure we could sit down and get along. And he liked who I was as a person. And anyway, it was a bit of awkward timing. Night Ranger had a, a new album coming out in a week and things went well at the audition, basically. And uh, we just sort of agreed to meet a few months later in August to um, have me take a crack at recording on the album and see how it went. I didn't want to say anything to anybody until then because, you know, it, it just seemed like, well, why? This might not work out. I might go in to record. And two hours into it, David says, actually, you're not our guy. And so I was cautious about it. And But things went well when I went in to track the album. And that's when I began to get a sense of, okay, I'm, I think I'm joining Whitesnake. What's David Coverdale like to work with? He's, I mean, he's such a Man, presence. On I love, personally, I... A plus 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 plus. I mean, I think he's awesome, dude. I really do. He's uh, number one. He's very funny, um, very charming guy. Um, but in terms of White Snake, he's just very straight ahead. You know, you just have to make sure you're not screwing up or um, treating the gig unprofessionally at all. He just he just wants professionals, man, to come in. He just I think at this stage of the game, just wants it to be easy and friendly and and uh, I think if everybody's just doing their job and treating it like a job man it, it's been great it really has I mean it was awesome to make the album with him um, the purple album and it's been great to be on tour with him I think he's great about supporting his players and um, talking up his players and and that's been a great experience for me and have you learned anything from him as a performer too like he's such a leader on stage David for me I think is the really the one thing I wish I had was how well spoken he is like even just the 
the phrase I'm saying right now isn't proper English. And I'm like doing this on the fly saying like and connecting it with things like like and you know, and all that stuff that we've picked up. And David is just so articulate. He'll do, he'll do an interview and I'll just go, man, like, I just wish I could, I wish I could do that. That's just, he's just so smooth, man. Yeah. And he has everybody in the palm of his hand. Smooth talker. Yeah. He's, well, he's, you know, not in a negative no, sense yeah. at all, but he's very, he is, um, he's a very charming guy. You know, I, I see it when we go out to, when we were recording the album, we'd go out to dinner together every night. And even at this stage of the game for him, which I think I can say his age without it being um, any kind of a thing, but he's 63 and we'd have waitresses in their twenties or servers, I guess is the proper term these days. And they'd all be flirty, flirty, flirty with him because he's dressed well and he's got the accent and he's well-spoken and charming. And they, all those young women just still love him. He's an international man of mystery. Yeah. He's table five. Yeah. 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 He's, he's definitely larger than life. He's, but I've had a great time working of them so far is there a moment on the white snake set where you're kind of it's kind of loose and you just get to stretch a little bit and play a little solo that's like not rehearsed or written well i have a guitar solo solo in the show oh, sweet. which is the first time i've had that since my very first band since outcry the first band we talked about how long do you go for it's like three, four minutes, something awesome, like that. That's a decent chunk of time, which I technically could improvise in there, but I ended up, I always end up kind of writing something. Can you show us a couple of bits of that? Oh, again, I'm like gripped around this mic. I can try if you give me a second. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Give me one second.
dude, thanks for um, playing. Like you went through basically all of that. I was just hoping for a little snippet. There and... was some, well, there's some slow hand stuff I, I left out. There's one part that where I do kind of the Nuno flight of the bumblebee trick with the delay. And, and uh, obviously we don't have the uh, capability to do that right now in this setup. And then there's uh, like a couple slow hand sections where I play melodically over some changes that I wrote and stuff that the keyboard player pads on and, uh, but yeah, yeah, the applicable sections, and hopefully I didn't butcher it too bad. Well, I love that you're such a perfectionist. Now, um, how do you? What kind of tone do you have going? Like in terms of, for me, one of my favorite sounds is when I have the rig set up and the room is just you know empty or what, or just a giant room and it's going through the PA, but it's not like right at me. I'm just hearing it. I can mm-hmm. just imagine it carrying through the arena while you're doing that big solo. Uh, yeah. I mean, we we do in ears, so you leave um, them in for that. That's, yeah, oh, okay. that's all how much you want to hear ambient mic-wise, I guess, in terms of hearing. And you do get some, ble- I do use ported ears, because I do like to have a little bit of the real experience. I, it's too much for me to have it totally, um, totally sealed off. But yeah, I leave them in, because I, I wouldn't want to have one start to get tangled up or fly off or anything like that, God forbid, and then the rest of the set I'm playing with one ear. Our guitars right. are panned out slightly, yeah. rebbing myself. I have reb pan slightly left in mine, and and me pan slightly right so and and i don't you know i don't think people always realize how amazing it is for a guitar player to just sit down and just do that I and mean, you've been talking for the last 20 minutes and to just bust that out plus i think you're in a higher tuning than you are on stage with white snake i'm in standard right now for today yeah and yeah we're you're tuned down a whole step um on the gig so yeah everything feels a little different and a little weird to try and play it right now but you know i'm just giving excuses for why i suck <laughs> but um yeah, Dude, I don't know. It's amazing what you're doing here before noon through this little cube. I can only imagine it sounding through the the whole rig. Uh yeah, it doesn't doesn't hurt having the Friedman to play it through and everything. It's it that's yeah. uh, definitely helpful. And that kind of music, you know, I used to do the Van Halen tribute band, Hot for Teacher, and you sat in with us a couple times. And I know that you can't just walk up and play that like a blues band or something. You can hop in, but this, when you get fired up, it's like all of a sudden there is a point where yeah. you get warmed up and the juices start flowing. I spend yeah, like with all my gigs, I always take all the difficult sections and warm up for the gig with by playing the actual gig so i do that with white snake as well so i basically take all my solos essentially and i play them each like three or four times before the gig begins so i've usually played guitar for a good hour hour and a half before the show begins just to feel like i'm i'm there where i want to be with it do you have a little practice amp backstage or anything i always find i have, i enjoy it more if i can hear a little something than oh, i can work on some i go vice versa actually i like it without i just think i'd rather play with no tone than bad tone right so i always yeah, I've been the guy to find like the silent spot. I do like bathroom reverb or something oh, yeah. like that. Something if like you that. can, you know, with TSO, I'll always go like stand in the shower area or something like that. And you just get like a cool, uh, cool little reverb on your electric guitar being played acoustically, essentially, or not plugged in. Where, where the hockey team takes a shower, but you're in there. <laughs> yeah, I've never really gotten the appeal of like playing with a bad practice amp backstage i'm just not really not a fan of it right i hear you some people have fantastic like you know you should see john petrucci's rig i've been backstage in his room he's got like a yeah a one by 12 tube mesa boogie combo with a few rack effects and everything he's, he's got, got a, a great he's got rig a fucking rig you could tour okay. with it is amazing yeah i i don't know well old habits room. die hard so it's kind of like what i'm talking about is something that i've been doing for my whole career so i kind of don't want to veer off of it either yeah. i probably i'm sure i could have a kind of a cool little setup backstage if I wanted but it's I think it's kind of the old school thing in me of kind of finding a solitary spot and just being on my own and and uh working on stuff you're always working like right now you're 
you're tapping your shoulder with your fretting fingers. It looks like you're Mm. almost kind of unconsciously practicing a little bit. Uh, yeah. I love this about you. Probably, probably nervous about the, uh, the, you know, the string of listener comments that will be below your podcast. Do you have a, a listener comment? Like, this guy sucks. <laughs> hey man, you could put somebody's beloved dog up there and they would say, that dog sucks. People, it's, that's, it's, that's just, that's how it is. But it's funny, man. There's, uh, yeah. there's definitely a, a culture of that, which is very unfortunate. And actually, if you meet that same person, they'd be like, dude, yeah. you're awesome awesome yeah right well who knows it's i guess it doesn't really ever change the actual execution of things that's what i always try and tell myself it's like it's more about that internal voice in my head from my parents from when i was a kid about like how was it actually played because yeah there's all kinds of misinformation in reviews especially nowadays with dot coms and everything being online it's just absurd i think Half of the reviews for the Purple album only got the keyboard player who played on the album right one out of every ten. I mean, everybody used the guy from the old live touring band or from from the this tour and said it was him or right. um, said there was there's people saying it was no keyboards, which is just mind blowing. So you you just realize they're not listening that intently. Oh, yeah. And I'd be lying if I it, it is a it is bothersome to me that music reviewers. Um, don't have to necessarily be schooled in learning how to play music at all. It seems like film critics and things like that, they have to go to school for that. They have to go and, but you know, you can read Rolling Stone magazine and it's clear that those people have not an idea of how to even strum a a G chord, which bothers the shit out of me. It's like all about lyrics and the poetry of it, you know, because it's like, that's all they really can understand from it. Exactly. Um, They don't really understand the musical elements. I mean, I think it would be way more informative if like a music critic could actually critique a, a, a drummer's groove or say, it's a great groove or I mean just any kind of commentary on any of the actual uh, musical content in it would be nice on occasion but they always tend to focus on the image image Uh, yeah pop culture aspect the image and the lyrics are like you know the reviewers just love that stuff but um, so I just try and view any of it any positivity like support and any negativity like well it it just is what it is it doesn't really change what happened right your last topic reminds me of my favorite David Lee Roth quote And I love Elvis Costello, but he says, critics like Elvis Costello because they look like Elvis Costello. Oh, man, what a great quote. Funny, but... What a great quote. That's totally true, dude. Now, there's one act I almost forgot, but you also had the honor of playing in Foreigner. I mean, that's a huge... The catalog on that band is insane. Yeah, that was... Yeah, and great musicians in that lineup these days. Uh, Kelly Hansen is definitely one of the best singers out there i mean just crazy how flawlessly he sings that catalog every night yeah, and total pro and uh, total pro and he also sings it like the fans want to hear it which i think is very smart of him he doesn't um riff or change it up or do his own thing and he gives the fans what they want which is a smart approach and uh jeff pilson on bass is a great a friend, a great, talented guy, man. Really awesome dude. And all the way across the board in that lineup, Michael Bluestein, Tommy Gimble, and Bruce Watson, killer killer dudes, great Now, when players. you started doing that, that was on the tour with Journey and Night Ranger and, and, and um, yeah, Journey and Night Ranger and Foreigner. And by the way, those band, all three bands sounded amazing that night. I was just saying earlier that you guys were the most physical and kind of seemed to connect with the audience the most aggressively. Was it weird for Night Ranger when they were sharing their lead guitarist? How was that? It, sometimes it gets weird with bands. Uh, we were in both bands for a while in that night. Well, I wasn't in both bands, but yeah, I was filling in for Mick 
I mean, and, person and, in the audience sees. Yeah, yeah. The per- but there was an announcement made in the show and everything like that. It wasn't like, hey, and, and here he comes playing in another band and no one <laughs> right. says anything. I mean, it was acknowledged that Mick was sick. And so, yeah, I just viewed it like a positive. It was totally an honor for me to fill in for him. And yeah, I mean, it might, yeah, it might have, it probably, yeah, it was weird for the Night Ranger guys, I guess. And um, it was good fun for me. And whatever, well, it was a cool experience, man, you know? Yeah. And what did you walk away from most when you did after doing those 12 shows or whatever it was um what'd you learn from foreigner that well that that was that i can learn a set in 24 hours and go on because that was scary as hell 24 I, hours yeah i only had a day what happened they just said mick is sick or yeah after the jones beach show phil carson their manager called me and said mick isn't feeling so well and I think I need to purchase some insurance and might need you to start learning our set. But it was put to me in a very like, this probably won't happen, but you might want to start learning our set kind of thing. Like somewhere down the road, it felt very, and I go, oh, thank you, Phil. Of course, man, I'll learn it. No problem. And the next day I got up and uh, I was, he had told me to call Jeff. And so I think I didn't call Jeff until like noon or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it was like totally casual. And I called Jeff and I said, hey, Phil wanted me to call you. I guess, you know, I'm supposed to start maybe learning your set. And and he said, no, you, that's no, you don't get it, man. You're on tomorrow. Oh, shit. And I said, what? And I, I mean, I was back in New York City. So that meant I needed to fly down to Virginia Beach and the whole thing. So. Um, I was like, well, get me a board tape, like immediately of, you know, everything that Mick does and um, I'll do what I can. And so I think by the time I had it, it was like three in the afternoon. So I, I think I rehearsed it till, need to leave for the airport at like 4.30 or 5. I think I rehearsed it till two in the morning, slept for like two hours, slept an hour on the flight, and then just went back to working on it and went... How many straight songs? into the gig. And the hardest part was that I was on with Night Ranger before. So while you're having this panicked moment of, do I know that set? There was 18,000 people at that show. So it's like, you know, significant if you suck. Right. And uh, so, you know, and everybody was watching. All the Journey guys are on the side of the stage. So it was a lot of pressure. But um, but yeah, well, well. I mean, I think it, it, there was some serious uh, uh, funny stuff going on. Uh, the Guitar Tech, we made uh, song form cue cards that were ginormous. They're like half of like a door, basically, mm-hmm. just and Velcroed them together. So after every song, <laughs> he'd walk out and rip up the song form, which basically I just had stuff like intro, uh, verse, chorus. Some of those Foreigner songs have strange forms. Right. Like, you know, the guitar solo will happen at a weird moment, like early or late. And so I just didn't want to have any moment like that where you begin, you know, the solo to cold as ice in the wrong spot or whatever. And so it just had all the song forms down and he came and peeled each card off and made it through. Amazing. Well, I know you've done that before. A lot of times you, I mean, you're, you're known for showing up. Didn't you do that? Like with the turtles, like show up with all their songs ready. Well, I, I think that's something that's gotten me ahead in terms of getting gigs. I never had to do it in a day like that though, before, um, I mean, other people have done this. It's not oh, the yeah. biggest deal in the world, but it, it's, it's, I suppose, like part of one of my stories of cool accomplishments of being able to do. But yeah, I've tried to go in with all my gigs in terms of home preparation, like be huge on that. I always try to rehearse for rehearsal. I mean, obviously, I think any pros really do. That's not that unusual. But for me, that just makes the most sense. And you're the least stressed out. And also, I think just rehearsal in general is the most productive when you're on your own because you can focus on the, the parts that you, you need to work on. As soon as you're in a group of people and they have their parts that they need work on, then you've got a bunch of stuff going on that isn't really what you need to be doing to play your best on it. So 
I'm a big home preparation fiend, I guess, to cut to the chase. Yeah. And then, you know, people would be surprised that even foreigner, it's so arranged that requires so much preparation because things Yeah, there's not in. a, there's not a lot of improv in the classic rock yeah. scene, really. I mean, there's bits of it within the framework, but you're basically, you're out playing the music and trying not to screw it up. Well, dude, you, you've done really well with everything and I want to congratulate you. Just, it's just fun to watch you just keep, <laughs> keep doing one great thing to the next. It's a uh, pretty entertaining. Oh, thanks, man. Well, uh, you know, it's not often I do an interview where the interviewer is a better guitar player than me. So, uh, okay. You mentioned uh, brown nosing earlier, but that was it. Cause that you're full of shit, but mm, I appreciate it. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me on. I really do appreciate it and do appreciate the support very much. And, um, you know, Hey man, let's just, uh, I, I view it like I shouldn't really even be doing what I'm doing in a way. I'm I feel like the underdog, so I'm just going to see how far all this goes and uh, have fun with it. You're doing great, man. What, you have a kid now? How old is your son? What he's three. He? Jack. Jack. He's a man. Yeah. I've seen you send me a couple of videos. Super cute. Yeah, David actually worked him in a little bit on the Whitesnake album and the, uh, I think it's the end of Stormbringer. You can, if you really, really listen, it's affected to the nines, but you know, there's Jack singing the ABCs in there. Sweet. So, yeah. He I got himself onto a Whitesnake album. But yeah, he's uh, he's a little rocker. He's fun. I remember when I learned the ABCs. That was the best best day of my eighth grade year. <laughs> and he's learning at three. Check him out. Taken after his father. One last request. You know, we've done a lot of stuff where you've played stuff that's kind of pre-written, but I kind of want to hear just Joel just jamming. I want to play something. I just want to hear you improvise. Just, okay. And we'll take it out on that. Okay, cool. Cool. Thanks again. Good All right. luck with the Thanks, new album. Thanks, dude. Thank you for having me. your friend Joel Hoekstra love that guy you know the night before this interview I think he had just flown in from tour late and knowing that I had to leave the hotel at 1230 he got up early grabbed his guitar hopped in the cab walked in with a cup of coffee and um, threw down 
That's what he does. He always puts in the extra effort. I'm not just saying this. You know, I've interviewed many, many people in Guitar Player Magazine, but Joel is the one guy. When we did this article on him in Rock of Ages and 80s rock techniques, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek look at 80s guitar with a cool guitar lesson component. He made all these hilarious videos. They're on my YouTube page. Just search Jude Gold YouTube Joel Hoekstra or see him on the No Guitar Safe Facebook page and you'll see there's some funny little skits he did, some of them with the cast members of Rock of Ages at the time. I always appreciate that extra effort Joel puts in and you can see where it's gotten him. Anyway, we got tons more interviews coming up, at least one per week. Who knows, maybe we'll start having to go more than once a week just because there's too much good stuff. Also, Joel is going to be in Guitar Player, I think, coming up for his new album. Talking about Dying to Live. Joel Hoekstra's 13 is the name of the artist. And Dying to Live is the title. Of course, you can head over to Facebook to learn more all about it and check out the No Guitar is Safe page. Or, of course, you can find Joel Hoekstra's musician page. Go straight to the source. I got all the photos up there for you from this. And... Um, some great interviews coming up. I already have four in the can, so stay on it and keep listening. I guess I'm supposed to remind you to write some reviews on iTunes if you can. But of course, you can listen on other platforms as well. Android has some good podcast applications that will allow you to subscribe to your podcasts. You can also listen on SoundCloud. As always, a very, very special thanks to Zoom for the H6 Handy Recorder that we use to record these things. All right, then. You know what to do. Keep it alive till you're 95. <laughs>